How many of you here love puzzles? Raise your hand. I am not a fan. I still love you. It's okay. I've never understood them. Why take a perfectly good picture, chop it up into little pieces, rearrange it, disassemble it, and then ask me to reassemble it just to see the picture again? Right? I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, a little bit uh, emotionally handicapped here, right? Uh, I've told you before, I'm not a big fan of, like, you know, gift cards or not gift cards, but uh, uh, Hallmark cards, right? You guys are probably thinking now I'm even worse. I don't like puzzles. Who is this guy? My wife, however, loves puzzles. In fact, many of the puzzles she does, she flips over all of the pieces so she can't even see the picture and then puts them together by shape, not by picture. To me, I would rather undergo water torture. Sometime, feel free to ask her about why it took so long for me to get out and actually propose her on the day I had chosen to propose her. She was busy doing a puzzle. It was supposed to buy some time, and it ended up almost taking us past the schedule in which I was going to propose. And you guys know that's a problem for me because I'm so type A, right? Well, this is awesome to watch when my wife puts together a puzzle. And this morning, I'm going to try and use her genius when it comes to puzzles because our text this morning will be very exciting for those of you uh, that raised your hand that you like puzzles. For those of us who don't, it's going to be a little bit difficult. But as I said, I'm going to leave some bread, breadcrumbs for you. You see, in the midst of all this poetry in the book of Isaiah and all the apocalyptic end-of-the-world prose, we come to this place in chapters 36 through 39 where the record stops and there's a screeching because we've moved from poetry into a story. And we have this amazing story of this guy named Hezekiah who is the king of Judah. And he is leading his people. But it's an odd story in that it is arranged in a way that we, as Westerners, chronologically and literally cannot understand. You see, we in the West, as I've said before, think very linearly. Step one, step two, step three, step four. To rearrange it in order to tell a story of its own, step three, step two, step four, step one, that would seem completely illogical to us. But in ancient Near East writing, they do it often because to take the major pieces of the story and rearrange them is not literary dishonesty, as we would think of it in the West. It is actually telling a story of its own. And so as I will show you what we're going to look at today, the story of Hezekiah, it's like a puzzle that we have to put together. But once we put it together, we will be given an amazing statement of the importance of faith and the graciousness of God. The story of Hezekiah will teach us this morning on the topics of faith, failure, and the faithfulness of God. Faith, failure, and the faithfulness of God. Now, it's going to take some serious study this morning on your part and on mine. And I know that our brains are already thinking about the warm 85-degree weather that's coming today. But if we can focus in here, I promise you that you will see an amazing story of a good man who has ups and downs, but is met by the faithfulness of God. And I think it'll be very encouraging to, to us today. So get your Bibles, get your pens and your paper ready. Realize that this will be up on the web this week if you need to go back. 
And I will also have up there the slides I'm going to go through because I'm going to use a lot of them today. And let's get ready and take a look at the first major point here. We're going to take a look at the puzzle pieces of the story of Hezekiah. The puzzle pieces of the story of Hezekiah. Are you guys ready to put together a puzzle? The puzzle pieces of the story of Hezekiah. I want to be honest with you that this is possibly the hardest section of narrative story I have ever had to teach you within a short, and I do mean short, 60-minute time span. Okay? What is the key to know about the story in 36 through 39 of Isaiah is that it is not chronologically structured, as I already said. Now, let me give you the reasons behind this, okay? And I'm going to do a lot of slides here, so let's take a look up at the, the screens. The first thing we have to note is uh, the structure of the book of Isaiah actually shows us that Hezekiah is a little bit different, and we need to look at it differently. Chapters 1 through 35, as we have well understood over the last months, is about judgment. Can I get an amen? It's about judgment, right? And luckily, he gives us glimpses of hope in the midst of that judgment, but it is primarily about judgment coming upon Judah. Chapters 40 through 66 is about the hope to come. Praise God, because we need it. It's going to be a good refreshment for us. And so 40 through 66 is about the hope of the Messiah and the kingdom to come. Now, that hope is given to the people of Judah because they're about to go into exile. About a hundred years after Isaiah prophesies, they will fully be taken into exile in Babylon. And so the chapters of 36 through 39 are about this random story of Hezekiah. And it's almost as if this is a hinge upon which the other two pieces swing. The story of Hezekiah, the reason it's arranged the way it is, is because it needs to tell the story of how Judah is going to go into exile. And you'll see more about what I mean here in a little bit. The order of the story that Isaiah wants us to understand is that Hezekiah represents the fact that God was faithful to protect and save Judah. And so the way Isaiah has it laid out is 36 and 37 are about the faithfulness uh, of Hezekiah in interaction with God. But then they end the last two chapters, 38 and 39, with his distrust, in a sense, of God. And that is part of what will lead them into exile. And so the two chunks of the story of Hezekiah are almost flipped in order to make this structure work. Okay? It'll make more sense as we go here. Just keep going with me. Secondly, what we need to see and we need to understand is that there are three different places in our Bible that tell the exact same story about Hezekiah. It's kind of like trying to harmonize the Gospels. There are multiple accounts of Hezekiah. Isaiah 36 through 39, 2 Kings 18 through 20, and 2 Chronicles 29 through 32 all tell about the life and times of Hezekiah during this given period that we're going to look at today. Now, the reason I have them listed in that order is because when you go back and look at when they were most likely written, they were written in this order. Isaiah was written first. About 100 years later, 2 Kings does its history. And then about another hundred years later, Second Chronicles does its history. Okay? So when you go and read these on your own, and I highly suggest you do that, what you're going to see is that Second Kings and Second Chronicles follow the out-of-order story as it is in Isaiah because either they're following Isaiah or they're following the sources that Isaiah uses to write the story of Hezekiah. Okay? 
Now, this morning, I will be hopping between all three of these places to harmonize the chronology of the story so that we can get our application. To just read through the story of Hezekiah as Isaiah has it in 36 through 39 is great, and there's nuggets you can pull out of it. But I believe, as we look at it the way we would understand it in Western culture, chronologically, we can get something very, very powerful in application out of it. And so, again, I'm going to really, really suggest that even if you're totally confused this morning, you go back, you take these notes, you re-listen to the teaching, and then you read through these sections, and you will pick up the breadcrumbs, and you will see what we're getting at by the end. Okay? Here's the third thing I want you to understand. The way that Isaiah has it laid out in chapters 36 through 39 are totally confusing. Because in all the stories of Hezekiah, he is built up as this amazing man of God. Like seriously, the best thing since sliced bread. Okay? I mean, he is the man. The Bible talks clearly about the fact that he is awesome in faith. Let me give you an example here. It says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him. Among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Wow, that's even including David. That's a pretty serious king. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. That's in 2 Kings. That's a pretty good man. If, if that's on your headstone when you die, does that sound pretty good? Right? You sound like a really big man of faith there. Well, the confusing part about uh, the story of Hezekiah as Isaiah has it laid out, as we will see when we read it, is that the last thing said about Hezekiah paints him as this narcissistic, totally self-absorbed, selfish, crazy guy, as a total jerk. And it's totally confusing to read the way Isaiah has it knowing that Hezekiah is this man of faith. And so it causes us to ask the question, why is it laid out this way? Okay, fourth and lastly, when we go to 2 Kings 18 through 20, and we sit down and we geek out, and I mean really geek out, you get your chalkboard out or your whiteboard out, okay, uh, Sarah Campbell, who works for us, and my wife, and uh, even Elisa, who also works for us, they'll come to our house and they'll see I have two chalkboards that I diagram out all of our teachings, right? And I diagram out the text and figure it out. And Sarah came in one day and uh, um, she was like, you look like a mad scientist, right? Uh, Just kind of outlining it out. Well, when you take 2 Kings 18 through 20 and you break it down, based upon the dates that it gives and the timelines it gives, it doesn't make sense according to how Isaiah lays it out. And one thing we know is that when we read the Bible and it's confusing and it seems mismatched, it's not that God's confused. Who's confused? Us. And so we have to take the time and we have to break it apart and figure it out. So here's my promise to you. If after I lay all this out and you are still totally confused and you think I'm full of it, I have a piece of paper in which I've diagrammed out the timeline of 18 through 20, and I will be happy to sit down with you after service and show it to you in detail. For me to do that today, which I kind of wanted to, 
I wouldn't be able to get to the application. And so my wife wisely told me as I was breaking this down for her yesterday, she said, if you show them the timeline, you can't tell them the application. If you tell them the application, you can't show them the timeline. So if you want to see it, feel free to let me know and I will show you. But for right now, you're going to have to just take my word on it. With all that said, I want to also add the fact that there are a number of really great commentators, one in particular named J. Alec Motier, who agrees with what I'm about to lay out with you. When they look at the Bible and they break it apart in all of these harmonies of the story of Hezekiah, they put together the puzzle pieces much the same way as I have. Okay? And so that's the reason why we understand that these are puzzle pieces that are mixed up and we have to take time to put them together. Okay? Have I lost you completely? Okay, all right, second big point here. Let's put this together. So we're going to put together the puzzle pieces of the story of Hezekiah. Knowing that we have to kind of mix it up a bit, we're going to take all the pieces and put them together. Okay? You guys with me? Can I get a hearty amen? Amen. All right, here we go. Here's the first thing we need to see. Okay? The first thing that we need to see is that Hezekiah, the very first thing he's noted for, and this is found in 2 Chronicles 29 through 31, okay? We're not going to read it for the sake of time, but he does this amazing work to restore worship. Remember that up until this point, the kings of Judah were a nightmare. They had been building idols to, to all sorts of false gods. They had been building altars all over the place. They'd even brought altars to foreign gods into the temple. They were a nightmare, Hezekiah comes on the scene as a very young mid-twenties guy, and he says, we are going to make this work, we are going to change this, and we are going to restore worship. And so because of his faith and obedience, he repaired and purified the temple, he restored the priesthood, he offered sacrifices of repentance, he restored musical worship in the temple, he restored the festal system of feasts like Passover, and he restored the tithe and offering, all things that had been long since forgotten because the people of Judah were disobedient to God. He restored all of them. And so the first thing we know is this young guy in a massive act of faith works for God and does an amazing thing for God. The second thing that we see, okay, and this is found in Second Chronicles as well, The second thing we saw that he did is that he fortified Jerusalem. What he had seen was that up in Israel, okay, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Assyria had come down into Israel and started to fight against it. And he realized that they were a coming, okay? He knew that in the distance they were coming, and so he worked super hard to fortify Israel or to fortify Jerusalem, and so in 2 Chronicles 32, 1 through 8, you read the story of all the things he did. He rebuilt the walls stronger, uh, and he built this thing uh, that was a tunnel. And the reason the tunnel was important was because their water source was outside the city gates, and it needed to be brought into the city. And so he built this tunnel that is now known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, everything I'm teaching you today is known history. There's something called the prism of Sanharib, which is the Assyrian king, um, where he outlines his attack on Jerusalem. 
And you can go today and you can see the tunnel that is known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. Here's what it would look like just in kind of an architecture drawing. See that blue line that runs from the entrance? That's where the pool is, uh, or from the, the springs, all the way down to where the pool is. And this was massive because now he was protecting his water source from the, the advancing army. This is what it looks like inside the tunnel. I visited there. It's kind of hard to see. Um, but at certain points... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's a good thing I wasn't claustrophobic because I had to be bent over completely at the waist. Uh, and you get to the center and all the, the, the uh, people that think they're really funny, the tour guide and all the pastors, um, they all said, everybody turn off your lights. And so total silence, total black, and I'm stuck like this. Not my funnest moment in, in uh, time. But this is an amazing, amazing thing because the way that they built this is they had one team outside and one team inside the city walls and they kind of went towards each other. And they met and they have a little jog in the middle but they were pretty darn close to each other. And that kind of an architectural feat, engineering feat in those days was a miracle of God. And so this, the reason I show you this is because the story of Hezekiah isn't a myth. It's not just something we're like, oh, yeah, no big deal, Hezekiah. No, this is really what happened. And God's word is telling us the truth here, okay? So in the middle of all that he did here, he fortified um, the city of Jerusalem. Now, the next thing that we see, and we're going to turn here to Isaiah 38, is where we see Hezekiah get deathly sick. And this is the proper chronology. He restored the worship. He fortified Jerusalem. He knew the advancing army was coming. And then he gets deathly ill with a skin disease. Okay? And he's not looking to recover until, by faith, he prays to the Lord for help. And so in Isaiah 38, we're going to see the faith of Hezekiah crying out to God. We see his faith in restoring the worship, in fortifying Jerusalem in the name of God, and in his sickness. Okay? So let's take a look at Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Notice that verse 3 points backwards to all that we understand so far. He has walked in the ways of the Lord. He has restored the worship. This is pointing to all his reforms. Verse 4, Then the word of Yahweh, the Lord, came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. We must realize here as we read this that verse 6 is saying that the defeat of Assyria will be in the future. Everybody see that? Verse 6, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Now, why I point that out is if you look up just a couple of paragraphs up into chapter 37, 
right at the end of chapter 37 is when Assyria is destroyed. That's one of your first clues that these are out of order. Chapter 38, verse 6 is referring to what happens at the end of chapter 37. Okay? And so what we see is he's crying out to God and God says, not only will I add uh, years to your life, but I will free you guys from the advancing Assyrians. Okay? So he concludes now in verse 9. It says, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through what he wrote here. You can read it on your own. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful uh, piece of worship to the Lord. But look forward with me to verse 19. We'll just cover the end of it just to get kind of an understanding of it. Verse 19. He says, the living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord, Yahweh, will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of Yahweh, the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Okay, so anytime you have a boil, get a fig newton, you're good to go. All right? (laughs) Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Okay? So he concludes this praise of God for saving his life and extending it. But then we are taken into the very next part of the story, and the Hebrew here tells us that this follows directly after his sickness. Envoys from Babylon come. Babylon was this fledgling kingdom. Everybody take a look up at the screen here. And Babylonia was kind of south of Assyria, and they were growing to be a power, but they were still smaller than Assyria. So they were going throughout the known world trying to make uh, alliances in order to fight against Assyria and take them down. And we know from history that they were eventually successful. So they hear about this crazy kingdom with this crazy king who is so close to this powerful God, Yahweh, uh, that he was healed when he prayed. And there's this crazy sign about the sun going backwards, and they hear rumblings that Assyria will be defeated. Who better to go align with than Judah? And so envoys from Babylon come and try to make an alliance. And this is Isaiah 39, okay? Isaiah 39. So we're starting to see the chronology of how the story of Hezekiah works. Super faithful at the beginning. He has a sickness and calls out for God and faithfulness, and God heals him and answers him, promises that Assyria will be defeated. And then Babylon comes because they hear this power of the God of, of, of Judah. And so it says in Isaiah 39.1, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now we read this and we think this is total hospitality, right? Come on in. I mean, I'm sure that you guys, you know, when people come in, you show them your bathroom, your gun safe, your gold bars that you've been storing away, right? 
No, what's happening here is very similar to what happens when you go to the bank and you ask for an alliance with them, a loan. They need collateral. So what he's doing here is he's saying, guys, not only do I have Yahweh on my side, look at what I can give you. I can pay you to be our buddies. And there's an alliance being built here. Now, does this sound like faithfulness? Does this sound like what God had called Hezekiah and all of Judah to do? Remember those phrases about do not go down to Egypt. Do not align with people that are not my own. Trust in me, God has been saying for 35 chapters. And yet, Isaiah aligns with Babylon. He falters and fails here in his life. He does not look to God to trust him, to be comforted and uh, secured by him, but he fails in aligning with Babylon. And so then it continues. Isaiah shows up. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what you doing? Right? No, what does he say? He says, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And notice Hezekiah doesn't answer fully. Whenever you ask somebody a question and they evade the question, you always know that there's conviction. Okay? Hezekiah answers the second. He says, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Somebody tell me what he's got going on in his heart here. Pride. Pride goeth before the fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. Look at what Isaiah says in response to Hezekiah. Hear the word of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house... And that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. You want to trust in Babylon? God will give you over to what you're trusting in, so much so that you will be taken into exile. And then he continues in verse 7 and says, And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Remember that a eunuch was one who was castrated and given into service to the queen. It was the lowest form of slavery that a man could be given to in a foreign kingdom. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is, what do you expect to hear or see here? Terrible, horrific, horrendous. I can't believe I just said this, but it's good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my day. Now, one of the other uh, accountings tells us that he basically says, at least there will be peace and security in my day. Isaiah says, God will give you over to what you want. You'll be protected, but your children will be destroyed. They will be enslaved. They will be taken to a foreign country. And Hezekiah says this response at the end of the account in Isaiah, good, at least I'll be okay. Does this sound like the man that was spoken of in that earlier verse that says he's the most faithful of all the kings? No, it makes no sense if we leave it right here. We see this completely narcissistic and insane response of Hezekiah. And now you can see where this is a very confusing story if we follow it the way it's laid out in Isaiah. 
But it makes sense because Isaiah is trying to point our eyes to the fact that the Judahites will eventually go into exile. And so laying it out this way from Hezekiah's point of view makes total sense. But this amazingly faithful man of God somehow states this crazy statement, but yet I believe what we'll see is that he comes back to faithfulness in God. So let's continue the story and see what happens, and then we'll come back to this. Now this is where we shift to 2 Kings 18. Go there with me. 2 Kings 18. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. 2 Kings 18, verses 13 through 17. I'll put it up on the board here. Isaiah reprimands Hezekiah, tells him, this is not good. You're going to be taken into exile because of your pride. And we see in the chronology here that something occurs in 2 Kings before the invasion of Assyria. And so it places right here in the story. In 2 Kings 18, verse 13, before we read, what was it that Hezekiah had shown the envoy from Babylon? Everything, all of his treasure. Look with me at 2 Kings 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sanharib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. See, he wasn't paying his taxes. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. In other words, charge me whatever. Just stay away from me. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Notice here that all of the treasure that he had showed to the Babylonians is now gone. This is how the chronology has to follow in the harmony of these stories. He was trying to bribe the Assyrians to stay away, but they don't buy it. He's been rebelling too long and not paying tribute, and so now they're sending an army to Jerusalem. And picking up here on this verse, 2 Kings 18, 17, you have almost an exact word-for-word accounting of the same thing that's stated in Isaiah and in 2 Chronicles. From this point on, the three stories all become almost exactly alike. But before we go back to Isaiah, I want to take you one more place. You see, 2 Chronicles, as I said before, was written later, and so it gives commentary on what Isaiah is talking about and the activity of Hezekiah. So go with me to 2 Chronicles 32, and we're going to see Hezekiah's pride. 2 Chronicles 32, and we will see Hezekiah's pride. 2 Chronicles 32, starting in verse 24. And this helps us begin to put together the overall story. Because the author of 2 Chronicles, traditionally known as Ezra, the scribe, has some information that he gives us that blows open the story and helps us to understand what's going on. And so 2 Chronicles 32, 
starting in verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to Yahweh, the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. In other words, he was faithful in that he called out to God, and God answered him. God saved him. But you see, salvation and grace always demands a response. We can't just sit in the grace of God hoping it will cover up our sins. It demands a response of repentance and sanctification. And Hezekiah was too proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But, love it when there's a but because it means that there's repentance. Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. In other words, the Lord started to allow Assyria to go towards them, and yet because they humbled themselves, God answered their prayer. It's interesting in our life and times right now, everybody in the world wants a revival. And because all revivals start with prayer, we even had one happen recently here in Salem. Everybody said, let's get together citywide and let's pray for revival because 2 Chronicles tells us, God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, I will restore their land and heal their land. So we get together and pray. But guys, it doesn't work if there's not repentance. It doesn't work if the people getting together to pray don't repent from the deep darkness of sin in their lives first and foremost. The Bible is even clear when there is unconfessed sin, God doesn't hear our prayers. And that's why it says, if my people who are called by my name, in other words, they're manifesting my character, they humble themselves, repentance, and then they pray. See, that's what this city needs to do. The people of Salem need to stop sitting in this free grace that allows us to continue sinning, allows leaders in the churches to continue sinning, allows people sitting in the seats to continue sinning, and all the while going, God, why don't you show up? We must repent first. And Hezekiah, oh, he gives us a perfect example. He leads his people in humble repentance. Verse 27, And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yields of grain, wine, oil, stalls, for all kinds of cattle and sheep folds. He likewise provided cities for himself and the flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. It's recounting the story of Hezekiah in general. This same Hezekiah, who had acted in so much faith, he closed up the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so, here's the commentary, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, his healing and the moving back of the sun, here's what God did. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. 
You see, the reality of what happens in life's ups and downs is not that God disappears and then comes back and disappears and comes back. All of life is one big test. And the question throughout that test is in whom do you trust? Who are you loyal to? Who do you submit to? And when we're confronted with sin, are we like Ahaz, the king we studied earlier in Isaiah, that just totally dismisses God and goes his own way and says, I am king, I am prideful, and I can handle it? Or are we like Hezekiah? And we refuse that pride and lay it before the Lord and humble ourselves. Are we like uh, Hezekiah in bringing back the faith that we have lost in the midst of our pride? Because what we'll see now as we step out of this commentary section and go back to Isaiah 36 through 37, what we see is that Hezekiah, yes, he had been acting in pride because he wasn't responding in gratitude to the goodness of God, but he's going to rely on the strength of Yahweh. His name in Hebrew is Hizkiyahu. Everybody say, Hizkiyahu. It means strengthened by Yahweh. And this is what he'll show. Yahweh used the Babylonian envoy and the temptation of trusting in something other than himself, other than God, to test the heart of Hezekiah. He used the ups and downs of life to see what was in the heart of Hezekiah and to see did he have his trust in God or in himself. Well, let's turn back to Isaiah 36 and we'll finish the story of Hezekiah. Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of the king of Hezekiah, Notice it starts out the same way, but it's going to exclude those couple of verses about him giving all of his treasure over to Assyria. It says, Sanharib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Ravshaka from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This should be ringing a bell. This is exactly where Ahaz proves his distrust in God back in Isaiah 7. But here, Hezekiah is going to act differently than King Ahaz. It says, There came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So in other words, he sends out his cabinet, his his higher-ups. And Ravshakah, which just simply, it's not a proper name, it means the, the field general or field commander said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Interesting question, isn't it? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. That was the first ally that we had seen earlier. That broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, Yahweh, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? You see, he didn't understand that Hezekiah, by removing altars and calling people to worship in the temple, was actually being true to Yahweh. He paints it it as if Yahweh is becoming powerless. 
So Ravshakeh says, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Is that a good idea to be using the Lord's name in vain? No. Then Eliakim, Shebna, uh, and Joah said to the Ravshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Ravshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall? who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Those of you who play pickup basketball, that's a good one. Remember that. <laughs> this is why some people call him Rav Shaka the Trash Taka. is because he's just talking trash. Then the Rav Shaka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. And come out to me, then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Hezekiah is truly confronted with a choice here. The king of the nation of Assyria, the greatest king on earth, is saying, trust in me, don't trust in Yahweh. And so his messenger comes and says, trust in him. Well, Isaiah, the messenger of Yahweh, says, no, trust in Yahweh. So Hezekiah is confronted with a choice. Does he rely in his pride and his ability to make alliances, or does he have faith and rely in Yahweh? So, like any good leader, he sends a delegation to ask what God says. Let's skip ahead to chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. In other words, he went into mourning. And he went into the house of Yahweh, and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Ravshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent, to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. We see here that he calls out to God and says, Isaiah, help us. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now time has passed by. 
God, by his sovereignty, moves the, the wars and the peoples of the world, and Assyria pulls away from Judah, and time passes, years even. And what happens is Ravshakeh then returns in verse 8. So you can imagine between verse 7 and verse 8, even years passing. And Ravshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. In other words, he wasn't attacking from the north anymore, but he was actually going out to attack the Babylonians. He was trying to fight against them. Now the king heard concerning Tirakah, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. So he's got multiple fronts that he's fighting on, so he's not fighting against Judah anymore. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Well, Hezekiah, what is he going to do? This is the crux of the story. Let's take a look at verse 14 and see. Hezekiah receives the letter, the trash talking from the hand of the messengers, and he reads it. What does he do? He went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before the Lord. You can imagine it in your mind's eye. Coming to the temple in sackcloth, his hair messed up, tears coming down his face, wondering what to do. You think your bankruptcy is bad? You think your home foreclosure is bad? His whole kingdom is about to be killed. So what does he do? He lays out the letters of trash-talking before the Lord. And he says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sanharib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Now God speaks through Isaiah. The rest of chapter 37 is God speaking through Isaiah, saying, your prayer has been heard and I will respond. And you can read that wonderful statement on your own. But let's fast forward and see right at the end here what happens, starting in verse 32. Move forward to verse 32. God promises, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a, sledge, a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sanharib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And then 20 years later, we find, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Everything that God said would happen comes true. Now, 
you might be saying, whoa, (laughs) you just took us through a lot, Hans. Why did you take us through all this? Why did you have to break it down like this? Why did you rearrange all the puzzle pieces? Because it is through all of this that I believe we begin to see the completed picture of Hezekiah. Faith, failure, and the faithfulness of God. Faith, failure, and the faithfulness of God. I believe that Isaiah had a very purposeful reason for laying out the story as he did. But in the harmony of all three accounts, I see a picture of Hezekiah that I think in our Western mindset, linear, chronological, this helps us in a huge way. Faith, failure, and the faithfulness of God. If I've completely lost you over the last 45 minutes, let me sum up the story very simply. Here's what I believe the chronology of Hezekiah's life is like. First, faithful obedience. Then, failure. Then, repentance. And lastly, trusting in the faithfulness of God. Faithful obedience failure, repentance, and trusting in the faithfulness of God. Does that story resonate with anyone in here? I started out so strong, and then I walked away from the Lord. And God's calling me to repentance, and now I've repented, and I'm starting to understand the faithfulness of God. Isaiah, for his purposes, was simply trying to contrast the pride of Hezekiah that led to exile with the faithfulness of God. And you might be saying, Hans, that would have been a lot easier to understand. Why didn't you just talk about that? But I believe that this paints the picture perfectly for leading us into chapters 40 through 66, in which we will hear the hope given to the people, looking toward exile, that God will one day bring salvation through the Messiah. And so for us, this chronology, this understanding of the story of Hezekiah provides us with three application points that I'm going to finish with here today in our last 10 minutes. First, it is not how you begin your faith. It is how you finish. It is not how you begin your faith. It is how you finish. So many across the history of Christendom and especially in our day of mass marketing and seeker-friendly churches, so many are brought into the faith with no understanding of the cost of discipleship, of anything. They're brought in by a spiritual, emotional high. They're brought in by false promises that life will be great once you become a Christian or false expectations that the body of the church will be perfect And then we are harmed, we are failed, or maybe worse, we are abused. I know that in this church, there are so many of you that have been harmed by other people's sin, that have been abused within what is supposed to be called the Bride of Christ. You've been hurt and harmed by people who haven't loved you in the way that you desired or expected. And on behalf of the church, behalf of Jesus Christ, I am here to say to you, I am so 
very sorry. I am so very sorry. My hope for us this morning and our vision as leadership for this church is to not just move past that, cover it up, but to see Christ in the midst of what is broken and to return to our first love just as Hezekiah did. Hezekiah cried out and said, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand all the kingdoms, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. As we, as individuals and as a body, take whatever time is necessary to heal from old wounds, I pray that we wouldn't let those hurts and harms wreck our faith in Christ or make us callous to the call to love one another. Finding reasons to disbelieve in the church and to disbelieve in the Lord, but instead to step through it and to come to what Christ calls us to be, a unified body showing the world who he is. It's not about how you begin your faith. It's about how you finish. And I know so many of you in here, you went on the missionary trips. You were part of the choir. You did the YWAM thing. And from there, it was kind of downhill. Where is God? Where was he when I needed him so badly and he didn't show up with that feeling I got the first day I called out to him? Guys, God calls you to endure the ups and downs of life. Because in the midst, you are tested to see what is truly in your heart. Are you here for Christ and for his church? Or are you in this Christian thing for that feeling that came along once in a while? We learn from Hezekiah, it's not how you begin your faith, it's how you finish. Secondly, we learn that our prideful disobedience has long-term consequences beyond ourselves. And realize here, guys, that I'm talking not just about sins of commission, things we do that harm people, but I'm talking about sins of omission, not putting Christ as a high priority, not making his people a high priority, omitting from our lives church attendance and tithing and serving and caring and acts of righteousness and justice because, well, we just think we can. We learn from Isaiah and from the book of Isaiah, uh, we learned from the book of Isaiah, as we discussed last week, that there's a weightiness to sin. And the false gospel that we have believed is that no matter what we do in rebellion against God, there won't be temporal consequences. And so we have believed a lie that if we sin, Jesus forgives us and covers up our sin, and we move on without ever trying to reconcile here and now. But the reality is that each one of us is not an island. And if we as a church, and please hear me with all of my heart of love for you, if we as a church continue to act as 250 individuals that get together when it is good for me on a Sunday, then the church will not be what it is called to be for the world. 250 individuals you can find at the Elks Lodge or at the gym or at a Blazer game. 250 individuals united as one because they have chosen to agree in the spirit of the holy God. That's a witness to the world. We're not an island. If you look solidly at the Bible, it always states that our sins spread and our omissions spread. 
As Christians, we must be a people who think corporately, communally, and not individually, in both our families and in the broader family of faith. Remember throughout the Old Testament that fathers are told to teach their children and their children's children. If not, then the sins will pass from generation to generation. Parents, I know that it is hard to discipline and train up your children as the word commands. But if you don't do it, you're setting your child up for failure. Parents, I know that you have every reason in the world not to tithe, not to come to church regularly, not to practice family worship, not to go to small groups. Everybody has a good reason. But here's the bottom line for your children. If you don't model a life of tenacious loyalty to God and to his people, your children will not do it when they grow up. I can't even tell you the number of you that have told me, I kind of hate church, but I go because I'm trying to provide a good model for my kids. They see it. They know And if you don't lay that down and love the Lord's church, your children won't either when they grow up. Within the church, we see the effects spread. And this is why God says through Paul, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We must be those who realize that our individual actions today will have an effect outside of ourselves with long-term consequences. And so for us to be the church that God calls us to be, we must get this. We must and adjust our lives to come under the application of this truth. And lastly, if those are both convicting for you, I want to finish with this statement that we learned from Hezekiah. He shows us that it is not how you begin your faith, it is how you finish, and that our prideful disobedience, just like his, has long-term consequences beyond ourselves. And we cannot think, well, I'm okay, so that's good. We must think about those outside of ourselves. But thirdly, I want you guys to get this. In spite of our failures, God is faithful. Maybe that first one is hugely convicting for you because you think, man, I used to be so zealous and now I'm apathetic. Maybe you're that person in the second one that you were convicted that, yeah, I've kind of been doing my own thing based out of pride because I just kind of walked my own drummer. If you are convicted, join me in the club that's convicted and realize that the power to step out of those things is not by just beating up on ourselves. Oh man, we're like Hezekiah when he stunk. No. We need to look to Hezekiah to see that even from the point of failure, God is faithful to restore. And at any point where we feel apathetic or like we have held people at bay or like we haven't dug into the plan of God in the midst of his church, he's ready to restore. In spite of our failures, God is faithful. If you're like me, you look back on life of sin done to you and sin that has been committed by you 
and you recognize that there will be long-term consequences, maybe for you, maybe for someone you love. But the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ is that the gospel is stronger than our failures and our weaknesses. And in chapters 40 through 66, we will speak of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the one that would come and minister to give a glimpse of God's kingdom, the one that is faithful. And we know his name to be Jesus the Christ. The one that would come and die as a sacrifice to atone for all our failures just as Hezekiah failed and to unite us with the Father. The one that would breathe into us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live a life of faith and constantly growing in him and being changed more and more into his likeness. The one that calls us to repentance, to change our values and our allegiances to him so that it changes our behavior. This morning, if you are in the midst of prideful failure, today is the day to repent. To turn away from that which you ha- in which you have pride and to turn towards Christ. Jesus is the perfect one that would come. When you look at the main characters of the three sections I laid out earlier, Ahaz was big in the first 1 through 35 chapters, and Ahaz rebelled against God. In 40 through 66, we will see the main character is this Messiah to come. And Hezekiah is in the middle as a hinge giving us the choice to continue in prideful rebellion or to turn towards the hope of the living Messiah. So my hope for us today is that we keep fighting every day to be led by the Spirit of God, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. For those of us that have done that, I want to leave you with the words of Hezekiah. If you have turned and decided that you want to walk in the hope of the Messiah, to endure in your faith and not peak early and never finish, to continue on and realize that we make failures, but God will restore us. For those of you in this room today, I want to leave you with Hezekiah's words as he prepared them for battle. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before your enemy. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is Yahweh, the Lord our God, to help us and to fight our battles. I want to leave us with the church with the fact that we can take confidence in Christ this morning, that he has died for our sins. He has raised us to new life. And he is calling you and I to walk in holiness with him and his people. And we get the honor of representing that today as a community. As we go down and celebrate with the people that are showing the sign of being welcomed into that community through baptism. Not just a couple of individuals that, hey, that's good for them, I'm happy. But as a community, a family going and welcoming these new spiritual children, so to speak into the family of God.